Good morning. I want to commend Roland and Sandy for their work and uh, life. And there's room for many of us to get involved. So we're going to announce that there's going to be a brand new Making Disciples group class uh, preparing us to be able to walk alongside of people facing challenging situations. Roland's going to be here in the back, so um, please talk to him afterward. We'll be in this morning, Ruth chapter 3. <clears throat> this is another uh, challenging morning to gather. Thank you, Chris Noyes, for coming out in some pre-dawn love, shoveling our uh, drive, our parking lot. Uh, I want to introduce the topic of Ruth chapter 3 by talking for a little while about singleness. Okay? More and more of us are spending a considerable part of our lives being single. We have people here in our church who are single again. Once married, but the marriage didn't work out. Partner passed away. I have a neighbor whose husband passed away about 10 years ago. She's lived her life as a single ever since. So many find themselves as single moms, single dads, longing for a partner, trying to figure out their singleness. Then there are those who are single, haven't been married. We have a young adult group here called the Yags. They're awesome. Love those guys. More and more millennials are uh, saying that they never want to get married. One millennial blogged recently, why would I want the government to get involved in my love relationships? Um, More and more are rejecting traditional marriage, um, going from dating to sleepover relationships to moving in together to let's not be in a hurry to get married. Um, Why mess up a good thing? I have a nephew who's been living with his girlfriend for about 12 years. They have no plans to be married. Um, I want to be a church that reorients itself to what the Bible says about singleness and sexuality. So a little bit of my own story. I was 24 when I was married, um, having spent three years of those as a Christian single. And let me just say that it's very different being a non-Christian single from being a Christian single. Before I was married, uh, those years as a Christian single, I lived in a house with 10 other guys, some from Kenya, some from Vietnam, some from Korea, uh, with Beulah Federhoff, who was an 85-year-old widow who loved having these guys stay in her house. And my job was, since Beulah had a heart condition, that if she had any events in the middle of the night to give her some nitroglycerin. <laughs> so I know something about the single life from you know, living with these guys in this house to conversations with singles. And I think I know something about the opportunities and challenges of being single. What struck me as I began thinking about singleness, and singleness is all through this text this morning, is um, how often I talk about being married and having kids and grandkids, and how seldom I talk about singlehood, singleness. And I think this is, this is a little bit of my repentance for uh, leaving you singles out of the story. Uh, you're single, you may have to do some mental gymnastics to kind of think, figure out how does what Pastor R say relate to my life. Okay, so... My apologies. The Bible, and particularly the New Testament, sees singleness as a gift, not as a curse. Speaking to the issue of being single, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, he says these words, I wish that all men were as I am. You see, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, and to be a Pharisee, he had to be married. And then the Lord met him on the road to Damascus. And his whole world was turned upside down. Between his conversion and the start of his ministry, Paul's wife either left him or she passed away. 
Now the Apostle Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament, was single again. He was free to write and travel and evangelize and plant churches and make disciples. If I were to say one of the major shifts in the Bible between the Old and New Testaments is the emphasis in the Old Testament was upon having children. The emphasis in the New Testament is upon making disciples. We believe here that a disciple is somebody who has decided to follow after Jesus. That's the most important decision you'll ever make. And then whose life is being transformed by Jesus. And then somebody whose life is on mission with Jesus. So Paul says, I wish that all men were as I am. And each man has his gift from God. One has this gift and another has this. He's saying that being single is a gift from the hand of God. He's saying that whatever the circumstances of your life are, there's the gift of God in it. If you are married, your marriage is a gift. If you're single, your singleness is a gift. Now, to you widowers and divorcees, it's not the loss of your spouse that's the gift. It's your singleness that is the gift. Being single means you have so much freedom. Paul goes on to say that married people will have many troubles in this life. Now, who can testify to that? Look around you, single people. All the married people are going, yes, troubles in this life. You know, I am married. I have a wife to attend to. I have kids to take care of. I have grandkids to love on. But the single person doesn't have those same responsibilities. A single person can have a much broader focus than I can have much wider breadth of relationships. They can be much more spontaneous in their schedules. They can stay up till 2 a.m. if they want to. So let's just say that there are many advantages to being single, but there's also some challenges to being single. And I'm going to speak to just two of them as we start. The first is there is a pervasive lie in our culture, and I can't blame anyone here for believing the lie, but the lie shows up in every movie and every ad, and here's the lie. That sexual expression and sexual experience are necessary for human flourishing. People believe today that they are not fully alive until they are sexually active. The culture is saying that you should have sex when you're ready, meaning that when the chemistry is right or there is a good connection, and the culture is saying that something's wrong with you if you aren't having sex. Did you know that the whole notion of sexual expression to be necessary for human flourishing comes not from the Bible, but it comes from Sigmund Freud? That's a statement Freud said about 100 years ago. The false belief is creating problems because when you have sex with somebody, you have a soul bond. It's a very powerful union. You move in together, you become sexually active, and your souls knit together. But once you are sexually active and the person moves out or moves on, we feel used and discarded, abandoned and betrayed. So I don't blame you, really, if you believe that sex is necessary for human flourishing because God has designed us as sexual beings. And the longings for intimacy are legitimate. But according to God, the ultimate authority, sex is to be contained only in a monogamous, covenantal relationship. 
The pull of this world is enormous, and the world teaches you that to be alive you must have sex. But sex itself does not quench the sexual appetite. The second major struggle I see with singlehood is that of loneliness. Many picture the single coming home to an empty house, giving their cat something to eat, microwaving their dinner in the microwave, watching, binging on something on Netflix. You see, we were not made to be alone. The Bible says early, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the woman. We were made for community. Loneliness is a signal to you. Just like when you're hungry, you need something to eat, right? Or if you're thirsty, you need something to drink. Or if you're exhausted, you need to get some rest. And if you're lonely, what you long for is community. And that's why we so strongly believe here and everybody being part of a community of believers. I can remember my days as a single man, very much, very, very much so, being in this house with a bunch of guys, but longing for relationship, longing for community. The, uh, the book we're in, Ruth, speaks to a concept that I want to familiarize you with, and it's called the kinsman redeemer. You see, a kinsman redeemer was a person who would come alongside if a person was in debt or their husband had died and redeemed that person. But there were three qualifiers to be a kinsman redeemer. The first is you had to have the right to redeem somebody. Not everybody in town can be your redeemer. He had to be the next in line, a kinsman. Now, normally the kinsman would be the next oldest unmarried brother. God had said the two shall become one, not three shall become one. So the brother knew his responsibility would be to redeem his dead brother's wife and raise up a son. Secondly, he had to have the resources to redeem. If his brother was in debt, he would pay off his debt. If his brother mortgaged his house, he had to buy it back. So it goes without saying that the kinsman redeemer had to have some wealth, some savings. And third, he had to have resolve. Resolution means desire or want to. If the marriage was going to work, he had to enter into it willingly. It was going to cost him. He had to pay a price. So for the sake of review, for those who haven't been here or for our guests, I'd like to walk you through the first couple chapters of Ruth on our journey to Ruth chapter 3. Okay? Now there's three, three primary characters in Ruth um, we're going to deal with, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Chapter 1. Chapter 1 deals with a woman whose name is Naomi. Her name means pleasantness or sweetness. And she's married to a man whose name is Elimelech, which means my God is king. And they're faced with a problem. There's a famine in the land. They live in the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread, but there's no bread in Bethlehem. So the prices are going up, and Elimelech decides that he's going to move his family from the land of promise, Bethlehem, to the land of compromise, Moab, which is known for its immorality and idolatry. The historic problem here is that of famine. But the current problem is that in Washington, that Washington, the seat of government, our federal government, there's furloughed workers in the federal government. Some of you here have been laid off for a while. And we want you to know that we want to walk with you through that journey. If you are furloughed, we know there's all kinds 
of emotions running through you. I've read that many furloughed employees are deciding between filling prescriptions, buying food, and paying the mortgage. Well, we are here to help. You are not alone, and we will get through this together. So what happens in the story is that Elimelech takes his family over to Moab, and then Elimelech dies. Now Naomi has left a widow with two sons, and they look around, and they find Moabite wives. So the two sons, whose names is Malon, which means puny, and Kilion, which means pining away, they find two wives, one named Orpah, and our Oprah on TV was named Orpah, but there's a misspelling on her birth certificate. She became Oprah. Orpah and Ruth are the wives. Shortly after they're married, these two sons, puny and pining, die. <laughs> so it's tragedy after tragedy. But there is a glimmer of hope. Though she is single again and widowed, there's a barley harvest in Bethlehem. So God has come to help his people. So Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah pack their bags and begin to hike out toward Bethlehem. Basically, Naomi says to them in the journey, I have nothing to offer you. You'd be better to go off back to Moab. So predictably, Orpah turns back to her people and her gods. Surprisingly, Ruth clings to Naomi and she says these words, which I love. She says, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Naomi knew she could not persuade Ruth to leave her. And so she comes back to Bethlehem and people say, Naomi. And she says, don't call me sweetness, Naomi. Call me Mara because I am bitter. I left here full, but I've come back empty. Chapter 2. We get introduced to a single man, Boaz, in chapter 2. He is the knight in shining armor. He is a kinsman redeemer. So single young Ruth says to single older Naomi, what if I go out gathering grain behind the harvesters? And Naomi says to her, go for it. So most likely Ruth is young and beautiful, a poor widow from Moab, extremely vulnerable to being hit upon. She gets up at dawn and she just happens to glean grain in the field of Boaz. And here we see the sovereignty of God. Boaz, the landowner, shows up, and the first thing out of his mouth is, the Lord be with you. He says that to his workers. Imagine the environment in that workplace. And the workers say back to him, the Lord bless you. Now, Boaz, the older single man, notices Ruth, the younger single woman, in the field. Let me just say parenthetically that nobody literally looks good in the field when they're gleaning grain, right? She's wearing the clothes of a widow. She's getting sweaty and dirty. And Boaz says to the foreman, give me the scoop. Who is she? Who does she belong to? And he says, well, here's the deal, boss. She's a Moabite woman. She's come back with Naomi. She's a really good worker. She was out here at daybreak. She's like a reaping machine. Boaz then speaks directly to Ruth. He says, don't go off from reaping in someone else's field. Stay right where you are. If you get thirsty, drink from my vessel. If you get hungry, sit at my table. 
And I've told the men not to hit upon you because implied you are beautiful. Boaz is the knight in shining armor. God had commanded the landowners to not harvest the grain to the corners of the field and not take all the fruit off the trees. And Boaz has gone over and above what's expected. He's provided for Ruth, and he has protected Ruth, and he has prayed over her that God may spread his wings over her, and he's invited her to the table. There's a romance in full bloom. The only problem is that neither Boaz nor Ruth see it. (laughs) Boaz is a good, godly man, and he was good and godly with Ruth. He's not really trying to romance her. Frankly, he doesn't even think he has a chance with her. He's a little older, maybe in his 40s, and she's in her 20s, and she thinks to himself, she would never be interested in me. Ruth, on the other hand, is a foreigner working hard in the fields, not thinking about a husband, just trying to stay alive, taking care of her mother-in-law. So to review, here's some points. Ruth is the virtuous woman. She leaves everything familiar behind, She decides to follow God, to associate with his people. She travels down a road she's never traveled. She takes the initiative to gather barley. She works hard to provide for herself and Naomi, and she communicates what's happening. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, he notices her in the field and inquires about her. He protects her from sexual harassment. Before there ever was a sexual harassment policy, Boaz was protecting Ruth in the fields. And he provided for her needs out of his wealth. And he shows her his favor and kindness. He invites her to the table and eats with her and is exceedingly generous with her. With that being said, let's turn now to Ruth chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, maybe your friend beside you does or you have a mobile device or we have some available. Ruth chapter 3, let's read together. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you? Should I not try to find a place where you'll be taken care of, where you'll be given rest? I must say in the story that Naomi is back. She's been on the sidelines long enough. She's about to get into the game. She's thinking about Ruth's future. Every day she gets up before dawn. She gleans behind the harvesters day after day, week after week. She comes home with baskets of grain But is this a sustainable lifestyle, living on the edge of poverty, working hard in the fields, just making enough to survive? So we could translate this to say words like, shouldn't I try to fix you up? Shouldn't I try to matchmake for you? Shouldn't I try to arrange a marriage for you? Now, you singles, do you ever get tired of people trying to fix you up? trying to arrange something for you? Well, that's what's happening here in this first verse of chapter 3, verse 2. Then she says, Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you've been, a kinsman of ours? Now, this is how I imagine this goes down. Naomi speaking to Ruth. Girl, all I hear about is Boaz. Boaz noticing me in the field. Boaz says, don't go to another field. Boaz said, stay right here. Boaz said, glean behind his servants. Boaz has protected you. Boaz has provided for it. Have you ever thought that Boaz may be your 
kinsman, redeemer. Now, Ruth, at this juncture in the story, verse 3, is a poor, penniless widow. She does not have a husband or a son. She is most likely staying at someone's house. She is wearing the clothes of a widow. But likely the house and the land have been sold. You could say she is in a tough place. Except there is a kinsman redeemer who has the right and the resources and the resolve to redeem her. What occurs to Naomi is that Boaz is one of her kinsmen redeemers. Ruth is in great need of redemption. Redemption means to purchase back, to buy out of slavery. I wonder how many homeless this morning are in need of redemption. I wonder how many immigrants to our land are in need of redemption. I wonder how many heroin addicts are in need of God's redemption. I wonder how many Americans are in need of God's redemption. You see, it's going to be a beautiful story here of how Ruth is going to be redeemed. It says tonight, he will be, Boaz will be, and the winnowing, we will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now, you've ever harvested, ever grown something, and it's harvest day. It's a day of great rejoicing. So now after the long season of growing, they're in this place where they would thresh the grain and then pitch it up into the sky, winnow it, and the chaff would blow away and the kernels would fall to earth. Now Naomi begins to roll out her plan. Now, do as I tell you. Take a bath. Do you see that? That's always a plus. Take a bath. Secondly, Put on some perfume. Make yourself smell good. Maybe some of that Moabite madness stuff. You got. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Now dress in your nicest clothes. Now it's likely that Ruth had two dresses. She had the dress of a widow and she had this other nicer dress. She would have worn the dress of a widow in the fields. Those days are hot in Bethlehem. To take off the dress of a widow and put on the nicer dress would have signaled that she was moving on. Now listen to me. There's a time in your life to grieve a loss. And there's also a time to move on. Naomi is saying to her daughter-in-law, it's really time for you, honey, to move on. You've been grieving long enough. I want you to move into what's next for your life. So take a bath put on some perfume, and put on the nicer dress. Now Naomi gets very specific with her instruction. Did you know this was in the Bible? She says, go on down to the threshing floor. They're going to be uh, winnowing tonight. Don't let him see that you're going to be there until he's finished eating and drinking. Stay to the side in the shadows. And when he lies down, <laughs> verse 4, at some point he's going to get tuckered out. Note the place where you see him lying. Keep your eyes fixed on Boaz. It's going to be dark outside. You don't have a nightlight to guide you. You don't want to do this with the wrong guy. <laughs> what I'm about to tell you, don't pick the wrong guy on the threshing floor. Make sure you see where he lays down. 
then go and uncover his feet. It's getting a little racy, isn't it? This sermon could turn, yeah, direction here. So when he lies down, uncover his feet. It's a risky maneuver, okay, to uncover his feet. To lay down on his feet could be taken the wrong way, right? Now, I'm not going to say to you, singles, this is how you resolve your singlehood. Today there will be a game on, I think two games on today. And he'll be lying on the couch. And he'll be drinking some beer and maybe some pizza. And when he gets in good spirit, right, takes a little nap, uncover his feet and lay down at his feet. Like, would I ever? No, that's not Pastor R's advice to you on how to deal with singlehood. Verse 5. So Ruth answered, I will do whatever you say to do. Now, I want you to see something really huge in this text. God's plan was for Ruth and Boaz to be together. But you see here the divine sovereignty of God working this out through human initiative and human responsibility. Obviously, the two people have to take action in this. Now, God had a plan, but people are working out his plan. And Ruth was willing to follow the plan. Now it's time to implement the plan, verse 6. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor, and she did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Put yourself for a moment in Ruth's shoes. She's hiding out in this threshing floor. Women aren't even allowed to be down there. She's watching Boaz through the evening. Her eyes are fixed on him. It's a pretty romantic scene. She's watching the man she loves with great interest. She sees him threshing out the barley, and you can almost feel her heart beating. She's about to make her move, verse 7. So when Boaz had finished eating and drinking, it was in good spirits, he went over to lie at the far end of the grain pile, and guess what? He fell asleep. It's been a good day. He's worked hard. He's eaten a nice dinner, maybe drunk some good wine. He's there to protect his barley from theft but he's totally not expecting what happens next. Ruth approaches quietly, uncovers his feet, and lays down. The scene I want you to think about as you think about this scene is, have you ever had a sick child and you hear them coughing? It's in the middle of the night and you approach kind of quietly. You kind of lift up the covers. You kind of slip in, again, rubbing their back or kind of calming them or speaking to them and they stop coughing and fall asleep. Well, she kind of slipped into this scene. It's kind of intentionally ambiguous language, but it's a very provocative picture. There's Ruth. She's perfumed herself. She's put on her best dress. She's patiently waiting. And when her man had fallen asleep, she uncovers his feet and lies at his feet. You say, why did she lie at his feet? Because servants lie at someone's feet. The longer I live and study and live in relationships, I determine that servanthood is the key to all relationships, the willingness to serve and love one another. What Boaz has done for her is he has served her, and now she's pledging to be his servant, his wife. In the middle of the night, something startles him. <laughs> Could it be the breeze on his naked legs? Could it be some animal making some sound? 
But he turns over and he discovers a woman lying at his feet. <laughs> He's awakened. I was um, down at my grandson William's house. My task was to put him down for a nap. Now, when Pop puts William down for a nap, he always reads Bible stories and tells them stories. It takes about an hour, hour and a half to put William down. And he's pretty wound up. So I figured to finish this, um, I was going to tell him the story of the big bad wolf. So when I finished up the big bad wolf story, I fell asleep. <laughs> and William ratted me out to his parents. He says, the big bad wolf's in my bed, and he's snoring. I can't fall asleep. And then I saw these two little eyes peer, waking me up, saying, Pop, do you want to play now? <laughs> now, this wasn't a four-year-old, okay? This was a beautiful 25-year-old woman lying at his feet. And he says the question, who are you? Did he say it confused? I mean, it's the middle of the night. I used to say to my kids, you know, nothing good happens after midnight. But this is something really beautiful happening at midnight. He says, maybe confused, who are you? Or in shock, like, who are you? We're whispering, who are you? And she says these words, I am your servant, Ruth. You'll, you'll never forget the night you're proposed to. I am your servant, Ruth. You see, when he first meets her, she's Ruth the Moabitess, but now she's Ruth the servant. Ruth is saying, I'm available for a relationship with you. I want you to pursue me in marriage. Bring your protection over me. Cover me with your garment. Bring me close to your side. Bring me under your care. This is a blanket. But what we all long for is for someone to care about us, for someone to protect us, for someone to look after us. Ruth has nobody to take care of her Nobody protect her, and she's praying that Boaz would take his garment and cover her. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. I think though the story is 3,000 years old, we still have the very same longing for someone to look after us, somebody to protect us. So we all breathe here in the story a sigh of relief, right? He isn't going to scold her. He isn't going to reject her. He's not going to take advantage of her. He's going to bless her. He's going to take care of her. And this is what he says. The Lord bless you. Boaz is a God-saturated man. He said, this kindness you've shown to me is greater than you showed earlier. He's referring to the kindness she showed in leaving her homeland to go with Naomi. You haven't run after a younger man. You could have. And you haven't chosen somebody else. You've chosen me. To be honest, Boaz is stunned that she isn't interested in somebody else. She's interested in him. She isn't pursuing somebody else. She's pursuing him. It's clear in the story that she's interested. But what's not clear is, will Boaz pursue her? Verse 11, all my fellow townsmen know this of you, that you are a woman of noble character. You are a virtuous woman. Now you can almost hear the wedding bells begin to chime. We're going to the chapel and we're going to get married. The story is totally working out, right? Ruth leaves her homeland. 
She steps out in faith. She goes to the promised land. She works hard. She gets noticed in the field, is invited to lunch, tells a story to Naomi, takes a huge risk here. Boaz is flattered. She can begin to pick out her dress. It seems settled, except for a little wrinkle. And here's the wrinkle in the story. Boaz says, you know what? There is a nearer person of kin than myself, a nearer kinsman redeemer. And if he's going to marry you, fine, let him marry you. But if not, I will marry you in a heartbeat. I will redeem you and make you my wife. Now, to hear how the story ends, you have to come back next week. But it's in chapter 4, okay? It's chapter 4. I want to say this as we close, though. The story is really all about redemption. And we all need to be redeemed. Maybe like Ruth, there's something in your past that you need to be redeemed from. You are in need of God's redemption. You just don't know how precious you are or how valuable you are. This morning, your life can be redeemed because our Redeemer lives. His name is Jesus Christ. And he paid the ultimate price for your ransom to set you free. Your life is very precious because you are made in the likeness and image of God, and your Redeemer, Jesus, paid a price to set you free. You see, back in the old days, the slaves were paid ransomed by payments of silver or gold. And the Scripture says that you're redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But let's say you have been redeemed. There are so many in our world that need to be redeemed. Would you consider being part of the process, the redemptive process that reaches beyond yourself to someone else's life that is in so great need of redemption? You see, I believe culture needs to be redeemed. The educational system needs to be redeemed. The military needs to be redeemed. Business needs to be redeemed. Government needs to be redeemed. Arts and media need to be redeemed. And so what we need to do is send redeemed people into those places to bring the influence of redemption upon our culture. But specifically, on Sanctity of Life Sunday, there will come an occasion in your life when you'll get to be a voice of life to someone's life. You'll get to speak into their soul of how precious they are, of how precious the life they carry is, of the recovery from having made a mistake, we get to be part of God's redemptive plan upon this earth because he has redeemed us. Pray with me. Father, you are a good God and you have good plans for each one of our lives, the unborn and the born, the young and the old. God, you have placed us here for a specific purpose, to follow after you, to bring a light into dark places, You want to equip your church to be effective in its ministry of reaching beyond ourselves to those outside our walls. You want to use us, Lord, for your kingdom's sake. You want us to be a place, a safe place for people to come into to find love and life, to find the peace and joy of Christ. So, God, would you just remind us that you knit us together inside our mother's womb, that you wove us together, all our unseen parts, 
our personalities, our character qualities, our features, everything, God, you formed inside our mother's womb of us. And you are at work in the life of every unborn child. Father, use us as instruments of your redemption. Help us to see the opportunities all around us to make disciples. We pray in Jesus' name.